Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes of Plus, The Plan to Evacuate Earth. I know, right? Today, we're going to talk about leaving the planet. Like, getting out of here. Like, getting out of Dodge, because that's going to happen eventually. But when we do that, we're going to need to know how to find habitable planets, what plans there are for leaving Earth, and could we terraform another planet to fit our needs? What would a society look like when we got to this new Earth? We're going to talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff. Over the next 40 minutes, we're going to delve deep into the astronomy, the astrobiology, the history, and the chemistry of leaving our planet behind. It is a crazy idea, but we might have to do it. So let's kick into it. There are a lot of factors that would come into play about us leaving our home planet. I mean, there's declining natural resources. There's overpopulation. There are asteroids that could hit us. On top of that, we might just want to, right? There might be people out there that want that sense of exploration and to spread humanity to other parts of this galaxy. I mean, that would be amazing. Boldly going where, you know, no humans have gone before. Life exists, though, nowhere else in the universe that we know of. There will come a day, a deadline, that we have to leave this planet. It is inevitable. It will happen. I mean, planet-killing asteroids cross our path, our orbit, about once every 300,000 years, and they've caused mass extinction events in the past a few times. The sun only has a couple billion years before it will get too hot to boil our oceans away. And even if we could survive that, another 7.6 billion years, it's going to start to expand and might envelop our whole planet. So we won't have a planet anymore. Global warming is causing all sorts of havoc with our food supply, our water supplies. Eventually, harvests are going to be altered. And there are even places on Earth where we can grow food now that we won't be able to. So we don't know how much food we're going to have in the future, which goes back to overpopulation. The Earth, according to scientists, can only house about 9 to 10 billion people. That's the theoretical peak. Now, in 1970, we were at 3.7 billion. By 1980, we had 4.5. By 2000, we had 6.1 billion. By 2012, we had 7 billion. That means in a very short period of time, we doubled in population, and we're looking at a population of 9 billion people by 2050. That's only a billion less than the theoretical peak population of our planet. And this will happen in our lifetimes. That's scary. Because then we come back to food and water supplies, too many people, not enough land area to grow resources for those people. Either way, I'm just going to wrap up this why we would leave Earth with a quote from one of my bays, Stephen Hawking. Quote, I believe that the long-term future of the human race must be in space. It will be difficult enough to avoid disaster on planet Earth in the next hundred years, let alone the next thousand or million The human race shouldn't have all its eggs in one basket or on one planet. Let's hope we can avoid dropping the basket until we have spread the load. We're going to have to leave. It's inevitable. So people are already on it. Though to be honest, we actually don't know that much. For example, we have to figure out more about life before we can decide whether we can help life thrive in other places, right? But where did life even come from? So let's start there. Panspermia. Maybe life already came from space. So there are chemical compounds out there that we can exploit to help life thrive in places where it just hasn't started yet. One of the theories is that life began on another planet and was brought to ours via an asteroid or some other space body. So maybe began on Mars, for example, and traveled to Earth. There's actual science to this. 
The theory was by a highly regarded origins of life chemist with the Westheimer Institute of Science and Technology from Florida. His name was Stephen Benner. And he claimed that two elements are basically the precursor for life to form, and they didn't exist on our planet early on. But they were likely present on our neighboring planet, Mars. They found that out by studying meteorites of Mars that have found their way here to our planet because it's not actually as uncommon as you might think. And it's crazy sounding, right, that Mars could have had these compounds, something hit Mars and an asteroid flew and hit us, and then they got to Earth. That does sound kind of crazy, but it's actually not all that crazy. So let me break it down a little bit. There are a few ideas at work here. Firstly is RNA. Secondly is the phosphate problem. So let's tackle each of these. Most scientists agree that life originated in water. Water is a lubrication for all chemical processes that life requires. No one really argues against that, but RNA or ribonucleic acid, it's like DNA's buddy, it doesn't actually do very well in water. It just kind of falls apart. It's not great. And RNA is widely considered the earliest expression of genetic replication. It was actually here before DNA. Before DNA, there was RNA. It's a precursor to all life on Earth. There weren't even modern cells yet, but we had little RNA molecules. But there's a catch. When boron is present, RNA does fine. The thing is, according to geologists, the early Earth didn't have that much boron. But Mars had a good amount of it. So what happened is somehow that boron may have gotten from Mars to Earth, perhaps via the panspermia theory on some kind of asteroid. Then there's the phosphate problem that we mentioned earlier, also related to RNA. Phosphorus compounds are needed to form RNA, but also DNA and other proteins. But earth phosphates, they're not that awesome. Researchers from the University of Nevada found phosphates in Martian meteorites were more water-soluble than the early earth phosphates. Obviously, we cannot prove anything conclusively in this, but the research is essentially saying that meteorites thrown from Mars could have landed here, bringing building blocks to Earth that worked inside of our own systems to have the right chemistry to create life. Now we have Facebook and Frank Ocean's new tracks and delivery pizza. It's the best. So knowing this... Mars might be a lifeboat for Earth if we needed to go the other way, right? Maybe. Maybe it's the best suitor for supporting human life after Earth. But if we're looking at one, like just little Mars over there, why not look at more? Because we're still going to have problems with asteroids and the sun is eventually going to die. So it might be best to go find a couple other solar systems and spread out a little more. Scientists have all sorts of criteria for habitable planets, and they are looking for them a lot. The Kepler mission has found tons of exoplanets. And there are some announcements coming down the pike pretty soon that they may have found some pretty close to us. So keep an eye on the science newswires for that. Side note, by the way, they sometimes call these planets Goldilocks planets because the conditions, you know, they have to be just right, not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too soft, not too lumpy. You get it. Anyway, criteria. Around Earth size is a nice criteria point to start with because you have a mass around, you know, 5.9736 times 10 to the 24th kilograms. No big deal. Volume around 1.083 times 10 to the 12th kilometers cubed. You know, simple stuff. Can't be too picky. The reason you would want to have that, of course, is probably size is important for a level of gravity that we have evolved to live in because low gravity is bad. High gravity is also not great because our hearts are designed to only pump in a gravity similar to us and our bones and muscles start to degrade when we live in low gravity for long periods of time. All of that is dangerous and tough. So if we're going to pick the perfect planet, we may as well get close to our own, right? There's also the orbit. That's important. The planet would need to orbit its star about the same distance as Earth. Well, relative to the 
temperature of the star and how big it is and whatnot. You know, you want to orbit in what's called a habitable zone or a Goldilocks zone or a green zone where temperatures can sustain liquid water on the planet's surface. That's the important bit because we have a lot of water in us. We like it. It's great. Too close, the water's going to evaporate. It's going to be too hot. Too far, the water's going to freeze. It's going to be too cold. And that's a very specific zone because water freezes and boils in a very small temperature range. But we also have to take into account the size of all of that, right? The habitable zone is going to change depending on the size of the planet's star. So it's not always the same place. We also have to study the star's chemistry. We need to know how much energy the star is going to be throwing out and how much of those molecules or that energy is going to be absorbed into the planet's atmosphere and how much will get radiated back out into space. Then we have to take into account solar flares because if it's a super high solar activity area, that might not be great for human life. Basically, it's not easy to determine a planet's habitable zone as a whole. You have to look at every planet case by case. According to astrobiologist at NASA Ames Research Center, Chris McKay, there are four categories of the requirements for life on Earth that we should look for when we're looking at other planets. Energy, carbon, liquid water, and miscellaneous factors. Miscellaneous. So, energy. You remember in grade school biology class, animals are consumers, plants are producers, right? We don't make energy. We suck in energy made by other life forms. On Earth we have producers. They create energy when they absorb light through photosynthesis. Chemical reactions transfer that energy from molecule to molecule. We eat that, and then we take in that energy. Yum, it's great. So we need to do that on other planets too. You know, we can't make energy. We are consumers. Pretty important. Another one, carbon. Kind of a big deal. Basically the backbone of all life as we know it on Earth. It can support crazy variations of molecules in biology. It's, you know, kind of a big chemical. There's a reason that people who take organic chemistry in college cry because most of it is carbon. It's a lot of carbon. We are carbon-based, and so all the life we have on Earth is also carbon-based. We should have carbon on whatever new planet we go to. There's also liquid water. We just talked a little bit about that. It's the universal solvent. All chemical reactions for life on Earth take place in it. And, of course, you know, a nice tall glass of lemonade is nice. Can't have that without water. Also, life cells are full of it, uh, water, so we need that. It's pretty important. McKay also noted that while light is important for life, there is life on Earth that doesn't get much light at all and still survives. Think algae and things very deep in the ocean. Um, algae is actually pretty amazing. Maybe we should do a series on algae too. Uh, when you're looking for a new place to live, you have to break down needs and wants, right? So far, we've talked mostly about needs. We need liquid water. We need some kind of producer for our energy source. We need carbon so that we can consume food and whatnot. Some of the wants, though, there are wants. You know, you can have, like, the perfect apartment and then have some that are like, this is perfect, but it also has a dishwasher. Yeah. So atmosphere, that's important. Mars, it's not big enough to hold on to an atmosphere. That's another reason we need a massive or larger planet. It doesn't have enough of an electromagnetic field either to block the sun's solar wind from stealing whatever atmosphere we would be able to impart to it, which we'll come back to during the terraforming section. So Mars has almost no air, and we like air, so air is kind of important, something to keep in mind. Of course, we could live inside, you know, in domes and things. There's also temperature. You know, good air often means good temperature, but not always. It keeps the planet warm enough for life and survival so we don't have to live inside forever. Nitrogen is important. 
helps form proteins and DNA. There's the nitrogen cycle that helps plants grow and die and grow again. Maybe you saw the Martian. That's why he needed all that poop to get some of that nitrogen into his uh, Martian soil. There's a lot of stuff to think about when we think about looking for a new Earth home. We did not evolve to live independent of Earth. This is a completely, I think to use just the right word, alien idea. So can we live on any other planet? Are we destined to expire when our sun goes out? Well, a study at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo was done on just this. The producer of the study, Professor Abel Mendez, developed a quantitative habitability theory. The study evaluated the current state of habitability on Earth and compared it to other planets, including extrasolar planets or exoplanets. The theory takes into account two main parameters, habitat quality and habitation. Essentially, life's potential to grow in an environment and also a measure of biodensity or occupancy. They used all sorts of planetary models to calculate and compare how Mars, Venus, Europa, Titan, and Enceladus, our closest neighbors that may support life, how they would all do. And without getting into the specifics, because as you can probably tell, this gets pretty technical pretty fast. Enceladus, has the highest subsurface habitability in the solar system, but it's too deep for direct exploration. So it may be habitable, but we can't easily go there and check. Mars and Europa had the best compromise between habitability and accessibility, but we need a lot more study to figure out whether this theory can form the basis of a new way to look for habitable planets because we got to look for light and carbon dioxide and oxygen and nutrient concentrations. Guys, there's so much here. We've got a long way to go. But we're getting there. People like the 100-year Starship Project want to put humans in another solar system within a century. So they're looking at problems like this all the time, how to get people to live in space for long periods off of a planet. Getting onto a planet then might make things easier, but it could make things harder too. In the end, we're always going to have to leave Earth. We have to go. Earth is our mother, and you can't live at your mom's house forever. I mean, some people can, but most people can't. At some point, you have to leave, and you have to go find out the world for yourself. In our case, humanity's going to need to learn to adult, too. That means getting out of mom's house. What if we travel to another planet that's less hospitable for humans? So let's say we find somewhere we want to go. You know, we've chosen to leave. We've got some people who want to go there, but the conditions on that planet aren't exactly what we need to survive. Can we tweak them? People who are familiar with a lot of real-time strategy and science fiction probably have heard the term terraforming, the idea that you can change a planet to make it better for you. It's been featured all throughout science fiction. It's kind of hard to find that perfect place. So terraforming does come into play even just slightly, right? Making an imperfect place perfect. Let me tell you a quick story. Kid Trace, little Kid Trace, like maybe 10 years old, thought global warming, it's damaging our planet, It's making it deadly since the 1800s. Nice job, humans. Why not put carbon spewing factories on Mars, thicken up their atmosphere, it'll nice, you know, a little warm up, like a little warm blanket on Mars. Not a bad idea, little trace. Scientists have thought about it. We can't just pop over there, though. It's kind of far. There's also no atmosphere or a planetary dynamo to hold the atmosphere in place. Uh, There's not enough gravity. There's a number of other things, but whatever. Nice job, little 10-year-old trace. But scientists are thinking about this stuff really seriously. So let's talk about Mars first. Mars, it's probably our best bet for a lifeboat planet. It's pretty void and desolate, though. Basically, we would need to cut the UV, raise the temperature and pressure of the atmosphere, introduce water, and fix that atmosphere to make it Earth-like. It's a lot of stuff. 
Mars's atmosphere is 95% carbon dioxide, almost 3% nitrogen, a little less in argon, very little oxygen, 0.13%, and a little bit carbon monoxide. Its atmosphere is 100 times thinner than Earth's. It even has trace elements of other stuff, but that's not as important. That thin atmosphere and being further from the sun makes Mars way cold. Atmospheres are like planetary blankets. I was joking earlier, but not really, because it keeps the heat in. It's what our planet does all the time. The average temperature is about minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit or about minus 60 Celsius on Mars. And it can change pretty drastically. In a Martian summer, it's not too bad. It's 27 Celsius, you know, nice balmy day. But in the winter, it can get really, really, really cold. The atmosphere is still thick enough to support weather and clouds and wind and stuff, but not much. Because it's so thin, if you were to somehow walk onto Mars without a spacesuit, the low pressure would make your blood boil. It would be bad. Not like in a hot way, but it would like become a gas. Not not good. There are hopes of making Mars more Earth-like by terraforming, essentially changing the climate for human colonization. It first was actually proposed in science fiction. Arthur C. Clarke, my boy, love that guy, Sands of Mars. Uh, Martian settlers heated Mars by converting Mars's moon Phobos into a second sun and growing plants there to break down Martian sands and release oxygen. This is obviously not that realistic science fiction. Beyond fiction writing, though, other ideas have come about. In 1964, Dandridge M. Cole outlined a plan to take ammonia, or NH3, from the outer solar system and have it rain down or crash into Mars. He thought this would thicken up the atmosphere and raise the Martian temperature. That's a big deal, since ammonia is a powerful greenhouse gas. It would also help create a breathable atmosphere for humans and add nitrogen, which is great. Another theory, though, that I really like Take a fantastically large asteroid from the asteroid belt next door to Mars, strap a big engine to it, and then point it at Mars. Once it smashes into Mars, it would create a temperature increase on Mars by about three degrees Celsius. Melt a trillion gallons of water already present on the planet, thicken the atmosphere, and it has an added bonus of introducing oxygen. Win, 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 win. Except, of course, grabbing an asteroid, strapping an engine to it, smashing it into another planet. That's, that's a little harder. There are a bunch of different thoughts and ideas throughout the years of how to terraform a planet. Most have something to do with introducing a greenhouse gas, shout out 10-year-old Trace, or uh, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, to trigger global warming effects. But more recently, experts were thinking of terraforming Mars by freeing heat-trapped carbon dioxide from the Martian crust back into the atmosphere. Essentially, what we're doing with oil, but doing that there on Mars. And it actually seemed pretty feasible until you look at the results from NASA's MAVEN, Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission, from late 2015. I'm sure you've all looked at those results. I know I have now. Uh, And that showed that the CO2 levels on Mars went up and then not down after its atmosphere was stripped away. That's right. Its atmosphere was stripped away by the sun. The solar wind pulled the atmosphere off the planet. It didn't have an electromagnetic field like we do generated by the core of the Earth spinning, they think, to you know, protect us. It also didn't have enough gravity to hold on to all of those molecules. According to the principal investigator of the NASA MAVEN mission, Bruce Tchaikovsky, those molecules have been removed from the solar system entirely. It's not possible to bring it back, it being Mars's atmosphere. Oh, and by the way, any of these strategies, whether it's an asteroid with a giant engine or a you know, greenhouse gassing up Mars or something, we'd have to figure all of this out, remember, from earlier. 
by 2050, when the population hits too much for Earth to stand. We're running out of time, guys. Most terraforming plans are not nearly as fast as Total Recall's few-minute planetary change. You got to do more than that. Also, original Total Recall. Don't even start with me. Plus, the planet is still too small and has no electromagnetic field, so even if we did build an atmosphere on Mars, the sun would slowly throw it away like socks in a dryer and just disappear. So Mars, not as great when you get down to the brass tacks. But what about the moon? Can we live on that? It's closer, right? One of the first times the idea of living on the moon was more than just science fiction was actually pretty recently in the year 2000. NASA published a study, and they found that a colony could be dug under the surface of the moon and still be okay, or in an existing crater. You just cover it over. So inhabitants wouldn't be bombarded by that harmful cosmic radiation, and since the moon has no atmosphere at all, you would have to build something anyway. Luckily, dirt is actually a pretty good reducer of radiation as well. Nuclear fallout can be blocked by like a foot, a foot and a half of dirt or concrete. And packed at the right density, a 2008 study by NASA's Lunar Science Institute found that lunar regolith can also do that. It can also block radiation. So if they go underground, they would have a lot of radioactive insulation from these cosmic solar particles. But recently, the idea of colonizing the moon has resurfaced, ah, pun intended. There was this one idea from professor of astrology and geology at Mount Holyoke College, Darby Diar. She says, the moon is to people today what the new world was to Europeans 600 years ago. It wasn't a direct quote, but paraphrasing. Here is a direct quote, though. Quote, they had been there a few times, but it took time to work up the courage and send people there to stay. And that's just what people are planning to do. Also, remember, Jar's name came up because she's doing cool stuff to help make this happen. In early 2016, a group of space experts that included leading NASA scientists outlined a plan to colonize the moon by as early as 2022. That's really soon. That's like not the next Winter Games, but the one right after that. You know, like six, seven years, that's crazy. And they could do this for only $10 billion. But the moon, that's not the end goal. The moon is just a starting point. It's used to get a base off of Earth to help us get to a point where we can go colonize other planets like Mars. According to Chris McKay, the same Chris McKay that we quoted earlier, quote, we are not going to have a research base on Mars until we can learn how to do it on the moon first. The moon provides a blueprint to Mars. The research papers included in the study outlined the plan. The lunar base would house around 10 people for a year at first, and they were hoping it could become self-sufficient and have maybe 100 people within 10 years. I mean, that's amazing. People are literally planning to do this. We live in the future right now. I love this. Good old Elon Musk is going to help them get there too. SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket would transport them to the moon with a hefty payload of everything that they might need initially, all of the water and carbon and everything we were mentioning earlier. And then basically everything they would need after that would be 3D printed in terms of the tools that they would need. There's another series we've been wanting to do, uh, 3D printing, so let us know if you think that that's still interesting and cool. They also have a nice spot already picked out for this colony in their paper, somewhere on the outer rim of one of the moon's poles because the sun would be there. They could solar power a lot of stuff, and living near the poles would provide a ton of power, 24-hour sun, essentially. Power for robots to collect ice and humans that need ice because it has water to survive. Speaking of water, by the way, remember Darby Jar? Of course you do. I said it just a few minutes ago. She is serving on the Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute, and she's working out how and where we can find water on the moon. 
She says that water on the moon can come from a few different places. Some, it's locked in the minerals in super tiny amounts. Basically, it's been there since the moon formed, and it's by super tiny, like we're talking real tiny. Some could have come from comets, but comets, you know, they're made of ice, so we can just capture some of those, hopefully. But another way that I found to get water on the moon that was super interesting is from the solar wind. And this is how she describes it. Quote, Solar wind is composed of highly charged particles, some of which are hydrogen ions that bond with microscopic particles. They are spraying the moon all the time, and sometimes they stick. So if we can capture that hydrogen, mix it with a little oxygen, we got ourselves some water. That is a crazy solution. So we've got people on the moon, we've got water, we know pretty much where they would live, but what would they live in, right? We have to build stuff. They would most likely live in something like a Bigelow Aerospace Inflatable Habitat, There's one called the B-330. It's an expandable or inflatable habitat. NASA was testing one with the TransHab, and it can house up to six people. has a 20-year lifespan, 330 meters of usable volume, which is pretty good. It also has 18-inch thick walls, so you don't have to worry about radiation. That's actually more than the ISS. But again, this is all the plan for the moon or Mars, which we can't do. So what about other than our neighbors? What do we do? Well, again... Every planet is different. Every star is different. Every orbit is different. Every planet is going to have different considerations. What we do know is we know how to build certain things that can be used to make planets more habitable. This is why most of our constructions are little bubbles and things, you know, in science fiction. But what if we think bigger, right? What if we encased a whole planet in something that we know would terraform that planet? By encasing a whole planet in a shell made of Kevlar, dirt, and steel, as proposed by engineer Ken Roy in late 2013, we would be able to have radiation protection, heating and cooling would be controlled, the length of the day wouldn't be dependent on the orbit of the planet around its star. It's also crazy. It's a crazy plan, but then that's kind of far off. Another terraforming plan was to build 200,000-pound mirrors in space to reflect sunlight onto planets like Mars because that could heat it up and be more comfy. I don't think this is worth it, you guys. This sounds really complicated. But we still have to leave Earth. We still have to go. So why don't we just skip over the terraforming part? Because it looks like it would take hundreds of years to terraform a planet, both in coming up with the technology and figuring out how to do it. And even if we crashed an asteroid into Mars, it's not like Mars is going to clear out in five minutes and be ready to go. You know, it's going to take a long time to terraform any planet. And we only have till 2050 when we run out of food. So we got to start figuring this out. Plus asteroids, they could show up at any time. So let's just assume we have a habitable planet somewhere and assume that we can get there. What would human civilization on another planet look like, right? There isn't much research on evacuating Earth. That's not really a plan that people have. It's kind of conjecture, but it's fun to talk about. You know, I just wanted to start there. We're doing a lot of kind of guesswork here. Let's just say a few things need to happen a certain way, right? Earth has to be in immediate danger of destruction, and we somehow found a habitable planet that we could go to. So then who would get to go first? I mean, obviously, you would want to go, whoever you are, lovely human. But chances are that's not going to be how it works. You know, you probably won't get to go. I probably won't get to go. People who will are powerful people like politicians. But who should get to go first? Doctors, scientists, professors, astronauts? I mean, probably astronauts. They've been to space before. But who gets to go? The United Nations probably calls the shots on this plan. 
about leaving Earth and colonizing new Earth. According to the UK Space Agency, who was responding to a series of freedom of information requests, they said that, quote, the United Nations have set out rules concerning visiting other bodies that may sustain life. These are set out in the Outer Space Treaty, which you may remember in the 1960s Outer Space Treaty has a really long name. Anyway, then it went on a bit and it ended with that the UK would abide by a UN ruling. So the UK Space Agency kind of outed the UN and said, look, there is a plan. It's there. They also spoke of who would get preferred flights off of Earth, and their answer was, quote, first and foremost, astronauts would be able to leave Mother Earth. And later in their responses, they wrote that we need to look after our own planet as mass relocation is not possible. So we're screwed, basically astronauts get to go, and probably some other important scientists and people who are picked by somebody or other, likely in the UN. But overall, most of us are not going to get to leave. So we're just stuck here to deal with whatever's going on. If it's an asteroid coming to destroy the planet or global warming or, you know, we'd run out of food or whatever it is. So the question is, is that how every space agency would choose? Especially now with private commercial space ventures. It'd be a huge business to fly people up into space so they could escape this disaster, whatever that would be. And what would happen to the rest of us? We're just here, hanging. Though all of this kind of depends on how long we have, too, right? Because there is kind of a futility if we were to have a disaster today in leaving Earth, because where are we going to go? Nowhere, nowhere. There's nowhere we could go where we could survive forever. But if we have 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years to plan for this, might look very different. An evacuation plan would look vastly different in 100 years than it does today or in the next decade. We tried to find if the UN or any other governmental body did have a specific plan in place for something like a devastating asteroid. They don't really have anything like that uh, publicly that we could find. But the only thing that we could find were ways to prevent an impact, which you can check out. We talked about that in our asteroid series, so make sure you go... uh, Check in that. And then there's also no real evacuation plan to leave Earth. There's no actual plan that we could find. So let's take a look at something kind of similar, you know, kind of the shadows of what that might look like. The U.S. government does have a plan for a normal catastrophic event. They don't need to leave Earth, but it's something like a nuclear war scenario where how we live our life today isn't going to be viable. It's called the Continuity of Government Plan, and it came around in the days of the Cold War, and details have been pretty secret for the most part, even from members of the House Homeland Security Committee. It's a 98-page strategy for mass evacuation and relocation of every federal government agency so that government in the United States could continue. This is all in the event of a catastrophic national emergency of some kind. Basically, what happens is the president and his or her successor would set up a government, which sounds kind of awesome, but mainly they would just make sure that national essential functions would continue. Things like ensuring the three branches of government, state functional, providing leadership visibly to the nation during this difficult time, but also to the world to defend the Constitution, you know, all that stuff. So if we weren't given much notice for a catastrophic event, maybe the line of succession of the president would also have to come into play, right? Uh, And this is kind of interesting, the line of succession. We have the president at the top, then we have the vice president, then you have the speaker of the house, the president pro tempore of the senate, there isn't always one of those, the secretary of state, the secretary of the treasury, then the secretary of defense, then the attorney general, then the secretary of the interior. They have a list of almost 20 people. After that, maybe they have another list, but that's that's it. 
according to the Presidential Succession Act of like 1947 or something. But if we were given 100 years, you know, if you had a century to plan, like in a century, an asteroid will destroy the planet or the sun will explode. We know that today. There's nothing we can do to stop it. Would we all be able to leave the planet? Would we be able to, in 100 years, pull together and GTFO, GTFOP, get the F off planet? Yeah. There are currently people volunteering for a one-way mission to Mars. You probably heard about that. And all they're trying to do is live there for a few decades, not forever. And it's called Mars One, and their selection process wants people who are resilient and adaptable and curious, including a bunch of other requirements, like physical requirements and such. But that's because it sucks. It's for a reality TV show, and the rest of life is a long time, and they don't really know what they're doing. But that's fine. What got us thinking, though, about relocating to populate another planet How do you maintain genetic diversity? How do you do all, what if you're living on Mars with a dozen people and one of the ladies gets pregnant and you're at capacity? Like you have a baby coming that's gonna be a child. You have to figure out what to do. What happens? You're living there, you know, out of contact. Or conversely, let's say you're living post-disaster and you need to repopulate. What happens then? How do you weed out people who are prone to diseases? Would we all need to be genetic perfections? Would you want people in your new population who have sickle cell anemia or who have genetic precursors to cancers or to other disorders? What about personal freedoms like birth controls and abortions? Are those allowed in this new society? All of these things would have to be addressed. And depending on what the society needed, these things could change. It's kind of insane to think about. There actually have been studies on how many people we would need aboard a generational spaceship to maintain a genetic diversity of a human population. In 2002, an anthropologist at the University of Florida calculated 150 passengers in a 2,000-year trip to another solar system could colonize a new world, assuming, of course, that you are very careful about who bred with who. doesn't sound particularly free, You know, you don't get to marry for love in this situation. You don't get to pick your partner because you have to worry about inbreeding. But larger groups tend to have, of course, a better chance at a larger gene pool, more genetic diversity, and that's good. A more recent 2014 study by an anthropologist from Portland State University named Cameron Smith, Cameron's estimate was much higher. A minimum of 10,000 people would be required to maintain genetic diversity. 10,000, and possibly even 40,000 to increase even more genetic diversity because lots of people are going to die during this journey. You're not just going to pop over to another planet. It's going to be fine, especially in a generational starship situation. The study is super in-depth. You can check it out. We put the link down in the description. According to Smith, with 10,000 people, you can set off with a good amount of genetic human diversity all built in. Then you can survive maybe a disaster, like a bad disease sweep. You can arrive in numbers and diversity sufficient to make a good go at Humanity 2.0. We better hope for the century mark if this disaster is going to be real because that's not really possible at the moment. A minimum of 10,000 people. Right now, the entire International Space Station is about the size of a five-bedroom house, and it can hold six people. Six. And we can only lift a few of them at a time to get there and back, right? The new heavy launch vehicle from NASA, which has the Orion capsule on it, that can lift four people to Mars, It's not the other side of the galaxy. It's not the other side of it. It's not even another solar system. Four people. We need to go, like, at the big estimate, 10,000 times bigger than that. That's insane and also impossible. 
But let's just say for the sake of argument, because otherwise this episode would be over right now, that we did it. We figured it out. We got everybody off the planet that we needed to get or that we could get, and we colonized Mars. So Earth is hit by something or destroyed somehow, and we go colonize Mars. What would the government look like on Mars? What would society look like? Or if Earth wasn't destroyed and we just went and colonized Mars, how would Earth-Martian relations work? Would we be in an independent Martian government? According to the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, no nation can claim territory in space. You can't own a celestial body, and no nation can say, this is now mine because I put my flag here. There is no law, however, against ruling a colony on Mars. But many experts think that it should be completely independent of Earth, and it should set up its own government and so on and so forth. Mr. Elon Musk thinks a democracy would be a good idea. Good one, Mr. Musk. At a conference, he said he was in favor of a direct democracy over a representative democracy where people could vote for their leaders as well as policies and laws to avoid corruption. But what happens to humans through several generations of space flight and then several more generations? You know, if we colonize Mars and then people live on Mars and they have kids and then their kids live on Mars and then they have kids and their kids live on Mars, that first generation's long gone. The ones that left Earth, they're dead. So in living memory, we would have no human who's been to Earth. What does that society look like? I hope some of you watched Battlestar Galactica, the remake one, because it was amazing. They had this militarization situation of the small populace. I think they had something like 40,000 people at one point, and everybody had a job, and the mission was long. Who knew how long? And people were separated in different ships by class and vocation. You know, you have a kid, and you're an engineer. Then when you die, your kid takes over your engineering job because who knows how long we're going to be out here and we need engineers. What if you're a cook or a fighter pilot or the president? Does your kid get to take over? What kind of a society is that? That you don't get those choices. This is the problem with setting up a whole new society. There is a group of people who are thinking about this, the 100-year Starship Project. So cool. Look it up. Uh, it's headed up by an awesome woman named Mae Jemison. And she and all of these people in the 100-year Starship Project are thinking about how to set up all these systems and what we would need to do to not only reach another star, but what we would do when we get there. It's super cool. On top of that, we would eventually evolve into this whole new species because we'd have a new environment. Like a long time. It would take a long time. Generations. The same way that humans who migrated around the Earth diversified, people who migrate to other planets are going to diversify as well. But in a different way and way more extreme. On Earth, we consistently experience, for example one G-force, the force of gravity from Earth. According to NASA, when you're in space, even just going to space a little ways away from Earth, astronauts can grow around two inches while they're, say, on the International Space Station. It's because your vertebrae expand or the squishy bits between your vertebrae expand, and that causes you to get a little taller. And then they lose that when they come back down to Earth, usually in about two weeks, 10 days or so. But gravity on Mars, that's only a third of Earth's. So that first generation would feel super strong. But by the third or fifth generation, they would have adapted. They would have adapted to that, that lifestyle. Not only would they maybe develop to be taller at first, their bone densities might change. And they would evolve to learn and live with this new normal. Right now, internal organs rely on gravity. And organ function becomes less efficient when not under gravity. Prolapsed organs, uh, which are organs that have moved around inside of your body and can become out of place, 
don't function as well and can cause a whole host of health problems. The esophagus, for example, relies very heavily on gravity as well as muscle movement. Blood flows differently when you're in space versus when you're on Earth. And if you're in a third gravity, that means blood is going to flow even differently there. It also pools differently. Astronauts in space have problems with their vision because the retina moves. and It's, it's weird. But they also have puffy face because their blood is puffed up and filling up parts of their face that would normally be held down by gravity. Which got me thinking, like, what if the first generation of Martians, like the people that just arrived from Earth, right? They think Earth people are super hot with their skinny little faces, right? The third and fifth generations, they probably don't think Earth people are hot anymore. Puffy face is hot because that's what everybody is and everybody they've ever known is. Super weird to think about, but that's how culture is formed. Whatever. There's also sun exposure. Mars is hit by a lot more of the sun's radiation. Of course, we could be in suits and indoors and under bubbles and things to prevent that radiation from getting to us. So our skin would most likely change color. It would either get darker or lighter. Our eyes would probably change as well. And according to an astronomy professor at the University of Arizona, Chris Impey, these people will become an offshoot of the human tree and will likely evolve into something else. That's so neat, right? They'll be Martians. I mean, they'll be humans, but they'll be Martians. That's so cool. Colonizing another planet in general is kind of a crazy idea. But if you think about it and you try and step back from it, colonizing the new world or exploring the Pacific out of Asia, you know, humans have been doing this. This is the same thing. They had to sail some type of ship out of view of the thing that they knew, the thing they understood, to somewhere far, far away and figure out how to make a life with only what they brought with them. That's not unlike colonizing a new planet. The difference is when you got to Plymouth Rock, gravity was the same and the rock wasn't poisonous and covered in radiation. But whatever. It's still basically the same thing. And to be honest, a lot of people died, so there's that. Something to look forward to in human colonization. But once we figured it out, humanity was way better off. I mean, if we'd never sailed past the horizon, what would, what would happen to the planet? It would have been a whole different world out here. Is that not awesome? I love that episode. It's so good. Thanks so much for tuning in with us here on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening on Anchor or iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever. Hey, hi, hello. You all are the best. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really hope you loved this episode. If you did, leave us a rating, share us with your friends, tweet at us. You can tweet at us at Seeker or just go right for me on Instagram, Twitter, or wherever. I'm at Trace Dominguez. And thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. This episode was written and produced by Blair Battenberg and me, Trace Dominguez. The associate producer was Victoria Barrios. The production assistant was Megan Bates. It was edited by Braith Miller, Blair Battenberg, and Alex Estevez. It was recorded by Matt Pignol and Sierra Williams. The intern was Debbie Hainum. Thanks again so much, everyone. I'm Trace. We'll be back next week with more crazy tales from the realms of science. 